Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. On to Romans 5. So here we go. Uh, Romans 5 is a big one. It's a doozy of a chapter. And so I would say uh, quite, quite easily, Romans 5 is probably one of the best gospel chapters there is in the Bible. When you look at just a chapter that just breaks down what the gospel is, Romans 5 nails it. And I've said this before, uh, I'll say it again. If somebody said, Jeremy, you've got one Bible verse to talk to me about with the gospel. You've got one Bible verse to convince me of the gospel. What is it? My answer, hands down, is Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 is the greatest single verse in the Bible that in a nutshell gives you the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's pretty incredible. Um, and so that in and of itself is just a great verse to explain the gospel to somebody who does not believe. But the rest of Romans 5 is pretty good too. So uh, let's not waste any time and let's jump right into it today. Uh, now, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness on the forefront because I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. We're going to piece things together. I've said this before, I always like to kind of save the gospel hammer for the end. Uh, Paul, in a lot of these chapters of Roman, he brings it out right in the beginning. And so I'm actually going to start at the end of Romans 5, and then we're going to walk backwards and hit the beginning of Romans 5. And then the most powerful part of Romans 5, I'm even going to kind of jump around in there a little bit. So... But I think with the Holy Spirit's help, we'll, we'll get there in the end, right? So Romans 5 is all about how we can achieve peace with God. How do we live in peace with God? And honestly, y'all, I think one of our greatest problems today is that we have a church that does not believe we are at war with God. We have a church that doesn't see how we are at war with God. And so we look at the world as if the world is at war with God, and the, the world is at war with God. But we refuse to turn that microscope on ourselves and look at how we ourselves are also at war with God. Because there are only two ways to live with God, right? I mean, there's war and there's peace, right? There's not really any in-between. And so we've got to choose which way we're going to live. And so, to do that, we're going to look at these three things today. We're going to look at the way of war and what that looks like. We're going to look at the way of peace and what that looks like. And then finally, we're going to end with the gospel. And we're going to look at how it's ultimately God's love that allows us to do any of this. So let's start. First of all, the way of war. And if you have been to the gospel house more than once... If you have listened to a podcast or a sermon online more than once, you probably know what this looks like. There's God's way, and there's man's way, right? Only two ways of doing, these, doing this, doing life, right? 
So if you're not doing things God's way, you are by default at war with God. Now, I know that seems like a pretty harsh way to phrase it, right? Nobody wants to think that, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not at war with God. I mean, you know, I just, I just like to do things my way. Those are the only two options, y'all. This is how the Bible defines it. And we would do well to define sin the way the Bible defines sin, right? So this is what we talk about all the time here at the Gospel House. This is, this is what we're about, right? We want to do things God's way. But there's this idea, and we've talked about it a ton, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but there's this idea that God is good enough if I just do my best, right? If I just, all right, God, I wake up in the morning, I'm going to do my best for you today, and it's going to come with all kinds of screw-ups, and I'm going to mess up, and I'm going to do all this stuff, but God, it's my best, right? Now, I've, I've told you guys this story before. My, my loving mother, I always knew when I was in trouble in elementary school, because my mom, whenever she would say, Jeremy, just do your best, I always knew what that meant in the back of my head. I knew, <laughs> Jeremy, you don't have a snowball's chance on this test. So just go out and do your best, and I'll be proud of you, right? That's, that's, what, that's what we hear, right? Just do your best, and I'll be proud. Great. No confidence in me, right? But that's, you know, that's how we approach God. We approach him. It's taught from the pulpit that if we just do our best, God's going to take care of the rest, right? But that's not actually scriptural. That's not what the Bible says. It is so far short of what the Bible actually teaches. And honestly, y'all, it's disrespectful to the power that God has given us, right? Because your best, when you are walking in your best outside of the power of God, outside of obedience to God and his leading, you are at war with God. Your best is war with God. All through Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, that's what the Bible says. And we've got to start viewing this as seriously as the Bible does. This is the nature of the world that we live in. And that's what Paul talks about in the back half of Romans 5. He says this, Therefore, just as, one, as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not counted against anyone when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, there's a very specific reason I did not have Jackie stand up here and read Roman, the back half of Romans 5. If you guys ever read some of Paul's letters, and it's like somebody just throws a brick at your head, right? It's like, what? What was that? That's how this back half of Romans 5 tends to be. It's pretty thick, and when you try to read it out loud, if you heard my eloquence at the beginning of that, you tend to stumble over it, right? Because it's confusing, and if, if we're being honest, a lot of times we read through this stuff, and it's like, what in the world is going on? So what's Paul saying here? What's he saying? Adam brought sin and death into the world, right? We good on that? We cover that in our Easter sermon series. Adam and Eve, and, and, and y'all, this is, this is what drives me bananas here. We've got a world today, we've got a church today that says sin is doing bad things, right? Sin is swearing, sin is drinking, sin is tobacco and drugs and sex and all these things, right? But what was Adam and Eve's sin? They did things their way. 
right? Satan came and said, hey, look, there's two ways you can go here. You can either keep listening to God, or you can come and do this. And look at how much fun this is, right? It, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like cocaine, like, hey, come snort this line, and it's going to be great. That's not what it was. It wasn't, oh, come, these untold pleasures are here for you. That's not what it was. And yet we look at sin in the church today and act like that's all sin is. And we've got a bunch of maniacs running around in the church who do things their way and expect God to bless it. Adam and Eve's sin, all of sin, the sin that was introduced into the world, is man's way. And it is a wide scope, y'all, isn't it? It covers everything else. There's the straight and narrow, and then there's everything else. We've got to get back to defining sin God's way. But then luckily the law came, right? The law came through Moses and everyone was saved. (laughs) And y'all, you know better than that. Has anybody, I mean, let's be honest. I'll be honest, I've done it, right? Have you ever really tried to obey the law? The law of Moses. I'm not even talking about the law. Speed limits, forget about it, right? (laughs) Obey those laws too. but, but, But the law of Moses, right? When you go through and you read the Ten Commandments and you break those things down, has anybody ever tried in your own power to to do that? It's impossible, right? We look at it like the law came with with the Jews and the Old Testament and Moses and everyone was saved. But Paul's saying, no, they weren't, y'all. The law showed us God's way. God said to Moses and the Israelites, this is what it looks like to live my way. But did the Israelites live up to it? Nope. Did Moses live up to it? No, right? Everyone fell. Everyone was wrong. And we know this, well, one of my, he's, he's like a sub-favorite preacher of mine, so this is one of Tim Keller's favorite preachers. His name's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, so by default, he becomes one of mine because I like Keller, and so, you know, you have to like the people they like. It's like your circle of friends, right? But one thing that he said, he was given, he was given a sermon on uh, the Israelites and their slavery in Egypt, and one thing, when Moses first came, he, he uh, you know, said, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, all right, if you got time to do this, then you guys need to still make, they're making all these bricks for pyramids and buildings and all this stuff. And he says, okay, so now you need to do that. You need to make the same number of bricks, but now we're not providing any straw for you. You have to go provide your own straw. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones looks at that text and he says, I would much rather make bricks without straw than try to live the Sermon on the Mount in my own strength. The Israelites found out real quick it was impossible to fill their daily quota of making bricks without straw, with having to gather their own straw. When are we going to learn that it is impossible to follow God's law in our own strength? It's impossible. You know, there's this faulty teaching out there, and I'll be honest, I've been guilty of saying this. I've, I've taught it before, but, you know, we look at Jesus, and we look at the Sermon on the Mount, and it causes some to say, myself included, well, look at, look at Jesus. He, he ups the ante, right? 
He ups the ante of God's law. God's law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says don't even think about adultery. God's law says don't murder. Jesus says don't even think an angry thought about your brother or sister, right? But I think that shows in us a misunderstanding of God's law because God doesn't change, right? Therefore, God's law doesn't change. And so Jesus didn't change God's law. Jesus just came and explained it correctly for the first time and said, hey guys, you're applying all of these laws that God gave you to your deeds. God wants it to go deeper than that. God's intention is that it affects your thoughts, that it affects your words, and then that it affects your deeds. But that this should be all of life, that the way God establishes this law should be all of life. And when we look at it that way, we very quickly realize Y'all, let's be honest, right? Any of you going to sit out there and tell me that you have never had an angry thought toward another human being? Right? Any of you want to sit there and tell me you've never had another lustful thought towards another human being? Right? None of us can stand in our own righteousness. All of us are stained. But our flesh convinces us that we can, doesn't it? And y'all, the church has given in to that because the church today convinces us that we can, that we can do this on our own. This is just what Satan whispered to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? You can be like God. And what was the sin? The sin was because what was whispered was you can be like God, but you don't have to be obedient to be like God, Right? Because that was the sin. God had already given Adam and Eve a way to be like him. There was nothing wrong with Adam and Eve. They were already like him. They were made in his image. But Satan opened a door and said, look, you don't have to be obedient anymore. You can be like him in your own strength. And doggone it, the lie worked, didn't it? And doggone it, the lie works, doesn't it? Because it still trips us up. But we have got to have a high opinion of who God is. We have got to have a high opinion of his law and realize that we cannot do this on our own. God is absolutely perfect. In every way imaginable, he is perfect. And then some. When we get to heaven and see him and actually experience him firsthand, we are going to realize how short our wildest imagination came in trying to describe him. But because that's who God is, that means that God's ways are absolutely perfect in every way imaginable, and then some. And when we get to heaven and we see his plan completely unfolded for all of human history, I think the only thing we are going to thank him for are the, answer, are the unanswered prayers the ways that he didn't answer our prayers, right? Because, and, and look, I'm not saying that this is wrong. We pray in our wisdom, in our intellect, right? And y'all, I mean, we all know this, right? I, I know this. This is, this is another thing that I heard Keller explain that was like, wow, yes. It seems so obvious, and, but until somebody explains it to you, it's like, duh. But when I was a kid, I thought I knew everything right? When I was a teenager, I definitely knew more than my parents. But I'm smarter than that now. 
Anybody else? Right? And then when I was in my 20s, I thought I knew it all. Way more than when I was a teenager. But then I got into my 30s and realized, and now I'm in my 40s and I realize, right? Every step along the way, y'all, when will we realize? And, and thankfully, I hope I'm to a place now where I realize I need to default to an expert. And that expert is not Google, right? Because, y- y'all, that's what the world does, isn't it? When you don't know the answer to something, you consult an expert, but most of the time, the expert that we consult is right here, right? And the church has jumped right in on that. When the church is struggling, we, we go to the shrewd businessmen and these CEOs of companies to figure out how to save the church. And the whole time, God's got his hand out saying, why won't you take my hand? Why don't you ask me how to do this? Why don't you ask me how to run my body? right? But y'all, it's not just the church. Like, we look at the church, you know, the corporation of the church, but it's not just church business. God made you. You are his body. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why do you think you can run your life better than God? He'll tell you what to do, but we've got to ask. And asking is the way of peace. Who is the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus, right? Only Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the only way we can have peace with God. Paul says this, like I said, Romans 5 is a little difficult to dig through, so the next part that comes in Romans 5 can get a little trippy if you go home and read it. Good luck. Uh, But verses 18 and 19 summarize the back half of Romans 5 really well. Paul says this, So then, as through one offense the result was condemnation to all mankind, so also through one act of righteousness the result was justification of life to all mankind. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Adam made the decision to go his own way, and it doomed all of humanity. This is the war that we find ourselves in. To go God's way or to go our way. Every human being since Adam has, has to make that same decision. And unfortunately, every human being since Adam has made the decision to go their own way, except one. I've talked about this before, but this absolutely blows my mind. Y'all, when we trace back, I think part of our problem as Christians, we take so many gospel truths for granted, and we don't trace nearly, of, nearly enough of the implications of these truths. Jesus Christ is God. We're all good on that, right? Jesus Christ is God, equal in every way. There's this mystery of the Trinity that we don't understand on this earth quite yet, but when we get to heaven, it'll all make sense. Somehow, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are all one God, equal in every way. Nobody less in power, nobody less in prestige, all equal which means Jesus Christ is equal to God and the Holy Spirit in every conceivable way, right? 
if there was ever a human being who walked this earth who could say, eh, I got this. It was him, right? And yet, right? And yet, even the Son of God, even God himself, chose to default to his Father in every decision he ever made. Jesus Christ could have said, God, I got this. Watch me go, Dad. Right? But he didn't. He defaulted to God and said, God, I want you to lead every step I take. In the book of John, I reference this all the time. It feels like every sermon, but, you know, eventually we'll get it into our spirits and we'll start doing the same thing. Right? But Jesus says in the book of John, I only do what I see my Father doing and I only say what I hear my Father saying. Guys, why do we think we can do it our own way? Jesus Christ didn't do it his own way. He came and he surrendered everything to his Father. He did not do his best. He did God's best. And because of that, through his obedience, we are made righteous. Talk about unfair, right? You know, again, Keller, I've got all these Keller things coming out now that he's gone, but, you know, he, he says in one of his sermons, Jesus is the only man to whom God ever said, obey me completely and I will crush you and send you to hell. That was the deal for Jesus. Obey God completely, be crushed and sent to hell, but through your condemnation, everyone else will be made righteous. And Jesus said yes. Anybody else willing to take that deal? I don't think I would be. Bear the whole wrath of God so that everyone else can be made righteous? That's heavy, y'all, isn't it? And yet Jesus was glad to do it. Through his obedience, Jesus showed us the way of peace. And there's two parts to this. We see it here in Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we celebrate in the hope of the glory of God. Now, there's two big theological words here. Justification and sanctification. All right? Two things. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are both justified and sanctified, right? But here's the thing. We've got to know the difference between these two words, and it's not that you've got to know the definitions of these words. If you walk out of here and forget those two words forever, that's cool. It doesn't really matter. But you've got to understand the implications of them. When you are justified, you are justified once, Jesus Christ justified you, and as long as you claim him as your Lord and Savior, you stand before the Father as if you had never sinned. We talked about this last week, but when God looks at you on the day of judgment, he does not see your record, right? Good or bad, he does not see your record. He only sees what Jesus Christ has done for, in, and through you. All right, we good on that? That's justified. But then there's another part of this, this sanctification that we go through. 
And sanctification happens progressively. Sanctified be, it means, means that you are being made holy, that you are being made more like Jesus. Okay, we believe in progressive sanctification. There's some denominations that believe that when you're sanctified, you're sanctified immediately right away. We believe here in a progressive sanctification, which means that you are not who you were made to be yet. It means that as you walk with Jesus on this earth, you grow closer to him. You learn more and more about him every single day. And the more you learn about him, the more you become like him. To live in peace with God, we must do both. You cannot start being sanctified until you are first justified. You've got to be justified first because you can't walk with Jesus any other way. So you've got to be justified first. But once you're justified, in order to continue living in peace with God, you have to start walking that sanctification process. Y'all, Jesus is holding out his hand, and as you take it and you walk with him, he's going to continue showing to you day after day things that you need to get rid of in your life. Things that you're holding on to that aren't helping you to look more like him. And that process can be painful, right? Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. And because no one likes to be told that they're wrong, we've bought into this lie in our culture today that you're perfect just the way that you are, right? And the church has jumped right in on this and says, God loves you just the way that you are. You don't have to change a thing about you, right? We make God out to be like he's filling out the back cover of our high school yearbook. You guys remember that? Your junior high yearbooks, right? You get XOXO, never change, right? That's what God says to us. Jeremy, XOXO, never change, right? Guys, that's not what God says. That's not what he says. God says, I love you, but I don't love the way you are. I have something better in mind for you. I want to make you better, right? I think this is the last Keller one, sorry, last one. But Keller says that Jesus didn't die for you because you are beautiful. Jesus died to make you beautiful. And that's the gospel, y'all. This is how we stay in peace with God. We've got to walk with Jesus through this sanctification process. It should be easy, right? It should be an absolute no-brainer. When Jesus offers his sinless life to stand in place for my sin-filled life. When Jesus offers his righteousness for my unrighteousness. It's like trading rags for riches, right? It should be so easy. But yet, it's the hardest decision we make. And here's the thing, I gotta I, I got be honest with y'all. You probably noticed if you've been here a couple Sundays, we don't really do altar calls. I don't, I don't do sinner's prayers. I don't ask for people to raise their hands so that we can count how many decisions there are for Christ. I don't like decisions for Christ. I just don't like them. Uh, you know, when I was in a junior high, high school, I went to youth group, and I wasn't like a great Christian, so I made fun of all the other Christians while I was in youth group. But, but like every time, we, they'd always do altar calls, right? 
They'd, you know, ask, who wants to receive Christ as their Savior? And every time, and if you went to youth group as, as a young kid and they did altar calls, you know who these kids were. Every time, the same three kids would go up, right? And as a non-Christian back then, going to this, this event, it was kind of like, what the heck, right? Do, do they count? Do you get to count those three every time? Like, does the counter go up three every time they respond? Because that's not really fair. That's kind of padding your numbers, Right? But here's the thing, y'all. Those guys were probably closer to correct than everybody else. A decision for Christ is a daily decision. I would say a decision for Christ is a moment-by-moment decision. Every moment. We're working with Elam on this right now, my son Elam. Every moment, you have to decide. Am I going to speak well of this person? Or am I going to speak poorly of this person? I don't particularly like this, this guy, and, and he's asked me to do something. What do I do? That's a decision for Christ, right? There's a stranger over there, and I really don't like praying for people, but I feel like I'm supposed to go pray for him. That's a decision for Christ. Every moment of every day, you are faced with thousands of decisions for Christ. I am not interested in you coming up here one Sunday a month, or every week if that's how you're inclined to do that, and, and showing everyone that you've made a decision for Christ. I'm interested in you every moment of every day making a decision for Christ. That's how we have to disciple people, right? And I think that's our problem today, is that we've convinced people that, that if you just put your hand up once in a church service, you're good. Rest of your life, you're good. Covered by the blood, you've been justified, you're at peace with God. But y'all, there is an active peace that we have to seek with God. And that active peace is called obedience. It's hard, isn't it? That's a lot of surrender. That does not leave very much time for you. We have a culture that's obsessed with self-care, right? Following Jesus doesn't give you any me time. Because Jesus says that you die to self and become his completely. Because he died for you so that you could be his completely. Right? And as it turns out, that's the only way any of this is even possible, y'all. We can talk about this in circles. You can logically get it up in your brain. You can, you can know all the facts. You can get it rooted down in there. You can know what you have to do. But there is only one way to make it happen. And that is you've got to be flooded with God's love. You have got to experience an absolute flood of the love of God in your life. Paul says this in Romans 5, 5, says, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We've talked about this a lot lately with faith and with prayer and all of that stuff, but about how even faith is not something that we bring to the table, right? Faith is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives to us. If you need more faith, you don't sit there and grit your teeth and uh, pop out more faith. That's not how it works. 
you got to go to the Holy Spirit and say, Spirit, I need more. I need more faith. And I would even argue, you need to say, Spirit, I need more of you. Right? You don't even need to pray for faith. You just need to pray for Him. And when the Spirit comes, you get everything that comes with Him. Right? But the same goes with love. We've got a church culture today that tries to muster up love. And y'all, it, 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 it's, it's good and it's bad, right? There's two edges to every sword. As, as sermons are broadcast over more avenues, as we are able to hear more preachers, you know, we hear more and more of these sermon illustrations, and, and, and they're great, right? They tug on your heartstrings, and they, they make you feel these feelings. But y'all, if you are chasing God with a feeling, and that's all there is to it, that emotion is going to crack under pressure. As soon as storms hit, and y'all know this, right? I I mean, in our culture today, we are tossed around by emotionalism like crazy. And you see it hit the church because we sing these worship songs about God's reckless love and he's busting down walls to get to us. And look, it's Prince Charming riding in on the horse, and right? And it makes you feel all the feels and you do key changes in the songs and then the goosebumps come and oh, that must be the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Y'all, I've led worship. I know how to manipulate those things. It sounds scary, doesn't it? But y'all know it. I can listen to you guys, any country music fans out there? You guys, country, couple, couple. Okay, Tim McGraw has that song, Live Like You Were Dying. I went skydiving, I went rocking mountain climbing, right? That song will give you goosebumps, won't it? Right? It gets, gets to the bridge, it's ready to go in the last course, and it hits this key chase. I went skydiving, and it jumps, you know, it's, whoa! And it gives you goosebumps. Jan and I went to see him in concert when we were back in college, and like when he gets to that part and he does the key change, all those screens that, that he's got going on, they all like go white. And so everything's just a white out and it like blasts you with this bright light and everything. And it's like, it's an experience, right? And doggone if the church hasn't picked up a few things from the world. Because when we need the Holy Spirit to move, move in air quotes, we just flash some lights in people's eyes and we do a key change. Mm, howdy. And every single time after service, oh, the Spirit was really moving today. Was the Spirit or was the key changed? <laughs> right? That's emotionalism, y'all. And if you are coming to God seeking emotionalism, seeking a feeling over and over again, it is going to crack when the storms of life hit. Emotionalism crumbles. Why are so many marriages in our country in trouble? Because we live in a culture fueled by emotionalism. And so people get married on pure emotion. And when marriage gets hard, and y'all, if you're married or if you're not married, marriage gets hard, right? Not with my wife. Marriage is is hard, y'all. And if your marriage is founded on emotionalism, just like any other relationship, it will crumble. But when your marriage is founded on love, especially, y'all, when your marriage is founded on the covenantal God, the, the, the covenantal love of God, 
that same love that God has for us, when you bring that love into your marriage, there is absolutely no weight that that marriage can't hold where it will start to crack because you're not holding the weight. God is, right? But we've got to do the same thing with us when we look at our relationship with God. It's got to be that covenantal relationship. And only the Holy Spirit can lead you into that. That's not a love that you can lead yourself into. That's not a love that you can grit your teeth and grunt out, right? He's got to open your eyes to it. It comes through an experience with him. But when we get there, look at what Paul says before this. He says, not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is a problem in the church today, y'all, especially in the American church. You get a sniff of persecution, the church cracks doesn't it? Come on, y'all. You know it. Maybe you are the Christian. (laughs) Take that, right? But you get a sniff of it. Somebody looks at you sideways. Well, they're persecuting me because I'm a Christian. I didn't get that job because I'm a Christian. I'm contacting HR. Right? But what's the Bible say? The Bible says we celebrate in tribulation. We celebrate when things get hard. Does anybody do that? Curious? Anyone? Anyone? I don't. When things get hard, I'm the first person to throw a pity party, right? Look how hard things are for me. (laughs) Feel sorry for me, guys, right? That's typically what we do. But the Bible, the Holy Spirit says, then you're not anchored in God's love. Because when tribulations come and you are founded on the covenantal love of God, you rejoice, right? Read the book of Acts. Peter and Paul and James and John and all the disciples, they're getting flogged and beaten and kicked and everything, called every name under the sun, and they walk out of those doors, and what do they do? Oh, guys, look at us. Let's go get the emperor. He'll save us. No, they rejoice. They celebrate that they were considered worthy to suffer the same fate that Jesus had. I love the story of Peter. Some of you might know this when, when Peter was martyred. They, because Peter, you know, would not denounce Jesus Christ, they, they said, all right, you, you won't denounce Jesus Christ, and we're going to kill you the same way he died. We're going to hang you on a cross. And Peter said, I can't die the same way my Savior died. Please hang me upside down. What? Are you kidding me? And we're upset because Chick-fil-A doesn't hold the same beliefs that we believe. What? Come on now. We celebrate in our tribulations because we know without a shadow of a doubt the hope we have in the love of Christ. And what is that hope? This is the gospel, y'all. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone would even dare to die. 
but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This goes against every grain of our culture, y'all. Because if you're going to swallow this truth, if you're going to swallow this hard pill, you've got to come to one truth. You weren't worth dying for. Right? You're not perfect just the way you are. Right? And that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Which is really funny because I think everybody deep down, if you really dig in there, you know that you weren't worth it right? But, but isn't that everybody's greatest fear? That's why we keep people at arm's distance. When people start getting too close, digging into closets that they shouldn't be in, we, we push them away, right? Because we don't want them to see the monster. Because our deepest fear is that if they see the monster inside, they are going to run away. And y'all, that's our biggest fear with God, isn't it? Come on now. This is the reason we don't approach God. This is the reason we don't run Mach 5 into the arms of Jesus. Because there is still a part hanging on. There's still a lie of the enemy in the back of our head that says when Jesus digs in there, when Jesus really gets in there, he's going to see that part of you and he's going to run like everybody else. You're going to tell him the truth at that point and, and just like everyone else in your life who ran, he's going to run. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says that that is the reason that he's running to you in the first place. That he sees that. He sees it. And he knows it. And he still runs to you. Not walks. Runs to you. And says, take my hand and let me show you the way out. This is every fairy tale come true, isn't it? Every fairy tale come true. This is actually one of the points that convinced C.S. Lewis of the faith. When C.S. Lewis was still a skeptic of the faith, he had a friend, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings stories. There's, it's fabled that there was a conversation between the two where Tolkien told Lewis, that both literary critics and figures, that, you know, they knew literature, and he, Tolkien pointed out to him, he said, don't you realize... None of these fairy tales are true. When you look at the world, none of these fairy tales are true, but every single person longs for them to be true. Every single human being, guy or girl, I don't care who you are, you want to be that person that some Prince Charming, guys, I'm sorry, but it tends to be the Prince Charming, so some Prince Charming comes and sweeps you off your feet and rescues you, right? Someone comes, and here, this is the one for the guys, but uh, there's a beauty who sees the beast and says, I know that there's a prince in there. But in this world, none of them are true. We have this longing inside of us for these fairy tales to be true. And as it turns out, all of them, all of them are completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Even though sin has made you an absolute beast, an absolute monster. Jesus says, I see the prince inside of you, and I'm going to call him out. Jesus is the ultimate Prince Charming, who even though there is nothing in us that's worth it, comes in and rescues us every single time. 
This is God's love for us. Anybody can love somebody who's beautiful, right? Anybody. But to love somebody who is in no way, shape, or form worth it. And to give your life for that person. Only God does that. While we were still sinners, Christ loved us so much that he gave his life to make us like him. Paul continues on and says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If this is how God treats us while we're his enemies, how much better will we be treated now that we've been made children of God, right? And Paul closes by saying, not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Y'all, the gospel of Jesus Christ is our celebration. We celebrate in a lot of things, don't we? We need to celebrate in the gospel more than anything else. This is our celebration. This is our life, church. This is your God, your Savior, Worship him, adore him, fall at his feet, and honor him. Jesus did all of this for you because he loves you. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect, fill out the form, and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you, and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.